BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's recall election eve. Tomorrow is the last day to vote on whether you think Governor Gavin Newsom should keep his job or be removed from office. And we've got a lot to cover. We'll get the latest numbers on vote-by-mail ballots and hear how the candidates are making their final push. Some of the campaigns have paid particular attention to Latino voters. ¿Por qué los latinos se están uniendo para votar sí para retirar a Gavin Newsom? We'll also learn how two Latino families are responding to targeted ads both for and against the recall. That's all next on Forum. Don't go away. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. California's 22 million registered voters were sent mail-in ballots last month because of the pandemic. The latest numbers show Governor Gavin Newsom in a position to survive the recall effort, with Democrats so far returning twice as many mail-in ballots as Republicans. But recent elections have shown more Republicans voting on Election Day, which could change the trajectory. We'll hear how Newsom and the candidates vying to replace him are making their final pitch to voters on this recall election eve and where things stand on turnout. Joining me, Paul Westcott, executive vice president for L2 voter and consumer data firm. Paul Westcott, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Seema Mehta, political reporter for The Los Angeles Times. Seema, glad to have you as well. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the latest figures. So Paul Westcott, counties posted some new numbers this past weekend on ballots received. Has the trend of more Democrats returning mail-in ballots than Republicans continued? It has. It has. When you're looking at the overall numbers, you've got about 3.5, close to 3.6 million Democrats turning in their ballots at this point, with about 30 percent of the overall electorate showing up now, mm. actually just over that, about 1.7 million Republicans. The biggest trend pointing to the Democrats' victory here, or at least more Democrats showing up, is the fact that you have a greater percentage of the Democratic population, the overall electorate it actually going out and voting than than Republicans by a percentage amount. So not only are they beating Republicans by uh, overall numbers, it's as a percentage of uh, total Democrat and Republican voters, respectively. Interesting. Turnout in off-year elections, special elections, tends to be low. So how would you characterize turnout for the recall election so far? Yeah, it's it's certainly lower than what it was in 2020 uh, in the general. Now, comparing anything to the 2020 election is a little bit, you know, it's a little challenging because sure. of the fact that 2020 was so spectacularly huge. But even if you look at uh, midterms and and really some of the other presidential years, uh, the overall percentage of turnout is still slightly below uh, what you would see in those years. So it's not an overwhelming amount of turnout, certainly in the in the mail-in ballots, but it's, it's higher than other off-year elections, uh, probably due in fact to the, you know, the amount of attention that it's getting. Um, in terms of just the overall overall strength uh, from a partisan angle in terms of turnout, it's tracking a little bit more heavily Democrat, even even among that group. And among those groups, who are the voters? What are some demographic breakdowns that you're seeing? 
Yeah, and that's what's really, really interesting. So, um, you know, when you talk nationally about who Democrats are and who Republicans are, you have some immediate things that pop into your head. These Democrats who are showing up tend to be older, with the vast majority being over the age of 50, with the single largest group being over the age of 65. Um, you have whiter, uh, about 55% plus are uh, white and uh, with only about 19% Hispanics actually showing up. Um, and then among Democrats, that number goes up a little bit, but it's still lower than it was both in the 2020 election and as a total you know, amount of the overall electorate. Beyond that, you also have, these are wealthier individuals. We use income analysis from multiple providers that we match back to the voter file. And you can see that uh, these are, are wealthier, typically above $125,000 a year annual income. That's individual level income. Uh, one of the larger groups being over $200,000 a year. So mm -hmm. you've got older, whiter, and wealthier, uh, as well as better educated, a higher number of grad degrees and uh, bachelor degrees than any other category of education we have. Interesting. How likely do you think it is that we will see more late voting or same-day voting from Republicans that could turn this into a win for recall supporters? I, I do think there's a large chance of, in fact, I know that you're going to see a lot of last minute turnout. Um, you know, it's all prediction. But what you're seeing is is that Republicans, at least what they're saying right now to researchers um, at UC Berkeley and others, basically that they are going to show up on election day, either because of a distrust of, of the early mail-in ballots or, or other reasons. But we do expect to see a surge, whether it's enough of a surge to overcome a two to one uh, advantage that Democrats currently have, assuming most Democrats are voting uh, for the governor, that right. it's going to be incredibly hard for Republicans to, to do that, given their low numbers in the state. Um, but it, it could get much tighter on Election Day. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think they have enough to overcome it. Well, Sima Manta, certainly Democrats are hoping that is the case. And meantime, they've got President Biden summing for Newsom today. Can you talk about that? And also sure. how important these big names have been? Sure. Um, well, President Biden's obviously the biggest name to come out, and he's coming. Uh, he'll be with Governor Newsom in Long Beach Senate at 7 p.m. Vice President Harris was out here last week. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was here last weekend. And I mean, some people are arguing, Republicans are arguing that these Democrats, these national Democrats are sort of on a rescue mission for Gavin Newsom. But actually, I mean, I think that, that there's an argument to the contrary, which is particularly for President Biden and Vice President Harris, who, you know, have had like a, a rough month in D.C., particularly because of the tragedy in Afghanistan, um, that, that, that they you know, see a win that is coming and are sort of you know, attaching themselves to a win. Um, and you know, I don't think we said that. I don't think we would have said that a month ago because I think it was much more uncertain. And obviously, we can't predict what's going to happen. I mean, uh, you know, this is a very unusual election. It's a special election in a September of an off year. So we can't predict what's going to happen. But the numbers have increasingly been um, looking in Governor Newsom's favor, both in the polling and in the vote by mail, um, as Paul mentioned. So, um, you know, when you have these national Democrats coming in, they also, if they're, if, if Governor Newsom has a, has a big victory tomorrow night, if he has, you know, if he doesn't just squeak, squeak away with it, but if he has a big margin of victory, that, that's something that will, you know, that they can sort of, you know, be part of, um, you know, in a month that has been hard for Democrats in D.C. Interesting. What about a couple of the top candidates who want to replace Newsom? What are they doing today on this day before the last day to vote? I mean, uh, all the candidates are, are all all over the state, you know, talking to voters, trying to get um, their, their supporters out to the polls. Um, we, you know, we see Larry Elder. He's been all over the place. Obviously, he's the GOP frontrunner. Um, you have Kevin Kiley, who's going to be in L.A. today, the assemblyman. He's going to be speaking at a, a high school where he taught as a member of Teach for America. Um, hmm. So, uh, you know, you have the and, uh, John Cox, um, who was the 2018 GOP nominee. He'll be at the French Laundry, um, which is obviously, you know, a very it's, it's been sort of a pivotal thing in this race because of Governor Newsom's uh, infamous maskless dinner there for a lobbyist birthday party, which really came at uh, a time when, you know, when everyone, you know, everything was shut down, schools were shut down, businesses were shut down. He was telling Californians, don't gather with your, you know, with multifamily gatherings for Thanksgiving. And then that image of him at this massless dinner with friends um, at a very, you know, very expensive restaurant, it just, you know, it really gave fire to the pro-recall forces in terms of gathering their signatures and qualifying it for the ballot. Right. Well, let me ask our listeners how they're feeling about the recall on election eve and invite them to join the conversation too if they have questions for you or paul westcott about the latest numbers and the latest 
tactics, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Paul Westcott, as Simo was saying a month ago, we were not saying that Newsom was as strong, of course, as he is now. Uh, at that time, surveys were suggesting that likely voters were kind of split on whether or not they would recall him. The latest surveys are finding that that's changed quite a bit. What what happened, do you think? Well, when you when you look at the data and you're looking at the people who are actually showing up right now, one of the things that I'm, I'm noticing, I'm looking at our, our dashboard right now and looking at some of the results from over the weekend, um, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, these are voters who are professional voters. They're good at what they do in terms of 94% of them showed up in some previous election. So they they turned out in some previous elections. So it's a very heavily previous voter heavy um, group. So when they receive their ballot, yeah, maybe you've got a group of people who are, are sounding off to researchers and pollsters based on news of the day. But at the end of the day, these are people who have filled out a, a ballot before, um, you know, who who are, you know, mailing it in and they probably, you know, reset and said, let's let's go back to our roots. Let's go back to, you know, let's take a look at the full field. Um, and, you know, in California, it used to very large, you know, election and ballot ballot books. Um, this wasn't the case. This was pretty straightforward this time around. So they probably went in and and, you know, made, made their choice knowing knowing how to do it. Well, this is what's driving listener Beth. Beth writes, mailed my ballot last week, but the question I cannot get an answer to is seeing as how Governor Newsom would be up for re-election in about a year, why didn't the recall folks put their money and effort into finding a winnable candidate to run against him? This special election will cost us taxpayers $200 million plus, and that makes me mad. In addition to to some of the changes that started driving things toward Newsom, Simameta, how helpful do you think was the emergence of Larry Elder as a front runner in polls? I think there are two um, two key answers to what what has changed the momentum in this race. Number one was the emergence of Larry Elder, who entered the race in mid July. Um, he's been on talk radio for decades, and he has said you know, things that you say as a you know, as a talk radio host that you might not say as a politician. So there was this enormous amount of records of him making controversial statements about women, about minorities, about all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for, for Governor Newsom, I mean, he and his allies have been sort of framing this as like a Republican power grab, but it was sort of amorphous. And when Larry Elder emerged as the front runner, um, it, gave, it gave him the ability to make a one-on-one contrast, which is, I think was more effective in terms of driving Democratic voters to the polls. You know, Democratic voters in, in all the polling we saw, it, they didn't disapprove of his hand, of his performance or his handling of the pandemic. They were just sort of apathetic and they were less enthusiastic about voting than, um, than pro-recall forces. And that was what the polling showed us at the end of July. When, with the emergence of Elder, that gave Newsom this sort of it handed him, it was a gift for him in terms of Democratic voters and being able to motivate them to say, hey, if you don't get out there, this is the guy that's going to be governor. Um, number two is that Governor Newsom and his allies spent $36 million over the course of four weeks in August, which is an enormous sum of money. And they spent a lot of it on TV, but they also spent it on voter turnout through various groups, through minority groups, through women's groups, um, various you know aff- affiliated you know, affinity groups. And I think that money just um, also really helped them get their voters to, you know, to return their ballots. I mean, just give us a sense of how much bigger Newsom's war chest is than even all the candidates, I believe, combined on the oh yeah, yes, on recall side. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they spent. Um, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but I mean, he he raised so much more money than all of the recall candidates and the pro recall forces combined, and he spent so much more money than them combined. And so, your know, money isn't determinative. If it was, we would have had a, a governor, Meg Whitman, in twenty ten, but. You know, it is it is helpful if you want to get your message out. <laughs> We're talking with Sima Mehta, political reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Paul Westcott, executive vice president of L2, a voter and consumer data firm. On this day before the recall election, the last day to vote, we're talking voter turnout and campaign news. And we're hearing from you, our listeners, about how you feel about the recall election. You can call us 866-733-6786, email us forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're getting your thoughts on the recall election and the latest numbers the day before the last day to vote in this election. And we're joined by Paul Westcott, Executive Vice President of L2 and Sima Mehta of the Los Angeles Times. You, our listeners, are with us. And let me go to Habib in Hollister. Hi, Habib. How are you? I'm well. What's on your mind? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a better candidate to choose. Otherwise, I would have voted for him or her to be the governor. To me, this gentleman seems like a privileged kid. You're talking about Newsom? He seems like a privileged kid? Yes, that's exactly. Look at his character. Look at what he used to do when he was, uh, wasn't he some attorney general or a mayor for San Francisco? Um, well, Habib, it's interesting you say that. I mean, Sima Mehta, there were a few people who felt like, yeah, if there had been a better candidate on uh, on the Democratic side uh, to choose, then they probably would have voted for Newsom. What do you think about that and Newsom's strategy there? Well, Newsom and Democrats made a real point of making sure that there wasn't a prominent Democrat on that replacement ballot. And that was a risk. It was a risky strategy. It um, it appears to be paying off for him. But um, because, you know, for voters, their gamble was like, you know, there might be some Democrats out there who, who don't support the governor, who if they had an option of another prominent Democrat who whose values they agreed with, that they would that they would vote for the recall. But by keeping a prominent Democrat off it, you know, it allowed them to a frame this as a Republican power grab, um, which we can debate about whether that's true or not, but they allowed them to, to frame it as that. And also it sort of allowed him to make the case like, hey, you know, look at the alternatives. You know, if you don't, you know, if you don't support me, like you're going to end up with a governor elder. Um, so I think, you know, it was, a, it was it was a risky strategy, though, because if the recall was successful, um, you know, then they would you, you would have a governor of a state that they they would not align with. Democrats' policies or, you know, Democratic values. Um, so it was a risky strategy, but it, it appears to have paid off. And it was a lesson that they learned from the 2003 election when you had Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante on the replacement list. And they, they sort of made, Democrats sort of made a complicated argument, which was like, vote no on the recall, but vote for, you know, Bustamante on the replacement candidate in case, in case it's, it's successful. Um, it's unclear how many votes exactly having Bustamante on the ballot cost Gray Davis, um, because Arnold Schwarzenegger was sort of just such a singular force in California politics. Um, But it was a a decision they made after looking back at 2003 saying, we don't want to do that again. Well, let me go to Domingo and Torrance. Hi, Domingo. Oh, hi. How are you? Uh, Hi, I just wanted to uh, thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me on, first of all. I wanted to let you know, um, I am a first-generation Hispanic. Um, I'm an independent. I have always voted uh, for Democrats throughout my uh, 40 years being in the U.S. However, this time I am going to vote to recall Governor Newsom. Not that I think he's a bad person, but I don't think he is such a good leader. And Hmm. here's why. Um, People aren't talking about this, but he misled the public about wildfire prevention. We've also wasted about $5.2 billion in um, payments to, to, to people that didn't deserve it. Uh, for COVID, and we are spending billions of dollars to help the homeless, and it's not really helping. And uh, add on to that, um, having a House um, House and a Senate in California that is uh, Democratic, and having this, um, our governor that's also Democratic, they have a carte blanche to to do whatever they want. And I think that they have lost the pulse of the people in California that are moderate. So we are getting extreme left policies, and then on the right, it's the same thing with Elder, extreme right. He may not win. However, I want to send a message to Sacramento saying that start to listen to people like everyday people. Not Don't listen to the left. Don't listen to the right. Be somewhere in the middle, because I think most people that I speak with that are reasonable people more or less feel like I do, that, that we are off, we're, we're on, on the wrong path. Mm. Well, well, thanks for weighing in, Domingo. This listener tweets, why is this election always presented as Democrats versus Republicans? How about independents who think Newsom is out of touch, privileged, overly pro-tax and regulations and very NIMBY? Don't hear much about that. I bet if Elder denounced Trump, he would do better than Newsom. Paul Westcott, I'm reminded earlier you were talking about how so far Latino voters have been a a little bit slower in terms of their share of the electorate to to show up in the vote-by-mail ballot returns. There's talk that uh, if Latino voters do show up in these final stages, that they could offset a big Republican surge. But maybe, as Domingo is pointing out, it's a little more mixed than we think. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the the Latino vote, and we've done extensive research into this uh, in particular in California, because 
there's more Latino voters in California than any other state, really what you've got is 30% of the voters and they're not a monolithic group. There's a whole host of issues that, that Latino voters care about. And you know they're not going to necessarily line up with any single candidate, at least from all of the research we've seen, certainly not any party. So um, when it comes to uh, suburban Latinos, we've noticed higher income Latinos, higher educated Latinos, there's a very different and more uh, persuadable group for Republicans and independents to be able to tap into. Uh, and, and again, not, not just one singular monolithic voting block, um, as many people might assume. Well, Robert writes, as we approach recall election day, the most disturbing un-American trend we see is leading Republicans already claiming election fraud, which is now becoming their standard cry across the country for any election they may lose. Do they have any shame at all? Paul Westcott, I'll go back to you on that first and then have Seema weigh in as well. But yes, we are seeing, especially on social, and we're seeing some candidates echo sentiments that have only grown stronger since Newsom has done better in polling, that uh, that this vote, too, will somehow be stolen. And I'm curious if you think that will have an impact. Yeah, I, I, I think it'll have an impact certainly on the timing of when voters show up. I think there's concern by some Republicans and Republican organizations um, that, you know, that voting early might potentially lead to some some fraud or abuse in the system. Um, but it also might depress turnout. And that was the fear in, in Georgia in those elections back during the during the special at the end of last year was that some Republicans might have just sat it out because they felt that their vote didn't count. So these are rumors. These are things online. We've we've looked into it. You know, there, of course, is always going to be some kind of, you know, voter miscalculations, things like that. But the degree to which it changes an election, so far, we haven't seen that. And that that seems to bear out in all of the major studies that are out there. Um, you know, but at, at the end of the day, I think that the messaging on it uh, is one that will definitely affect how voters at least are going to participate. Well, Sima Mehta, is this a winning argument? I see Republicans trying to kind of balance that with also making sure that uh, their base shows up to vote. Right. And I think, you know, you see this with state party officials in a quandary. Um, but actually, I just want to point out uh, former President Trump a half an hour ago put out a statement that says, does anybody really believe the California recall election isn't rigged? Millions and millions of mail-in ballots will make this just another giant election scam, no different but less blatant than the 2020 presidential election. So, you know, state Republican Party officials who, you know, they, they, they have to avoid... Uh, criticizing the former president's statements um, because they don't want to anger his supporters, but they also want to see every ballot turned in because every ballot that's turned in before election day is a ballot that they have in hand. You know, it's let one less person they have to turn out. So they've had to sort of walk this complicated dance with with urging people to vote, but also saying, you know, we'll take, take your ballot however you want it. Um, but also, I think it's really interesting um, the how this is, you know, the, and this is really the former president's, uh, you know, because of his his statements in recent years. Um, how it's just upended sort of voting traditions in this country because that, you know, a couple cycles ago, Republicans consistently voted early and Democrats voted on election day. And that's completely on its head. And you, you see this when you talk to Republican voters who are like, I'm not mailing my ballot. Who knows if it'll get there? Someone will tamper with it. You know, like you really feel like, you know, there is definitely a strong uh, d- feel a, a need or a desire to vote on election day because they feel like their ballot will, you know, is more likely to count on election day than if they mail it in. Well, let me go to Ellie in Oakland. Hi, Ellie. Hi there. What do you want to say? Can you hear me? I can. Oh, I just wanted to make a comment about the previous caller and uh, the opinion of sending a message and what that's going to do for women, women's right to choose, what the the short-term, long-term effect mm. of the court system and judges and the bigger picture of, of sending a message and how that can be so detrimental to the women and minorities of California. It's just disgust me actually I'm, I'm my heart's racing thinking about sending a message and what that does to the bigger picture so yeah, oh, yeah. That's about well it. thanks ellie for sharing that thought aaron writes i feel like my 2018 vote for newsom has been hijacked the fact that he needs to win a majority over a crowded field to keep his job while any challenger need only win a plurality seems underhanded at best let me bring one last call in bryce in oakland hi bryce hi what would you like to say before um, Seema and Paul leave us? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, I'm a, uh, a pretty traditional liberal Democrat, but I, I'm still undecided on how I'm going to vote with the recall just because I, I'm so disgusted with 
like Gavin Newsom and, and what he represents. And in terms of, of the French laundry scandal, the, the real scandal isn't that he wasn't wearing a mask. It's that he was meeting with a longtime friend of his who was a, a, a lobbyist for the corporations that were owed money to by PG&E. And it's just like if anybody is governor of a state and they have a friend who's a corporate lobbyist, you tell that friend, hey, as long as I'm governor of the state, I'm not going to meet with you ever because that's just such a blatant conflict of interest and avenue for corruption that it's just the fact that he couldn't see that and that none of his team saw that just really points to just such a deep corruption mm-hmm. and obliviousness with like, like it's just it is mind boggling that 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 meeting ever happened at all. And there, there's so much other stuff mm-hmm. with the whole thing in terms of 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 uh, basically Democrats. I don't even like to call it left. It's it's just it's just people who are so out of touch. The head of the teachers union in L.A., who gave this interview talking about how it's okay if our children didn't learn their times tables when the schools were shut down because they learned the words insurrection and coup and all this stuff. Well, Bryce, let me let me see if I can get Seema in here just because people need to leave soon. But we're hearing a lot of frustration. And Seema, I do need to ask you if Newsom is recalled. I wonder with all your reporting, what you think will be the biggest reason why? Um, I mean, I think that there is frustration among Democrats. I mean, I, I don't want to say that every obviously every Democrat does not love Gavin, uh, love Gavin Newsom. Um, and there is frustration about, as the caller just mentioned, French laundry, the idea that the rules, you know, that apply to uh, Californians don't apply to him. I mean, we see this in the polling, even among people who say that they're voting against the recall, like uh, I think 25% in the most recent Berkeley poll, basically said that he... He doesn't follow the rules that he sets out for for the rest of us. Um, so there is definitely frustration among Democrats. I mean, I think part of what happens depends on what the turnout is. If he wins this by like a 20 point margin, he's going to take that as a mandate. If he wins this by a couple points, that's an embarrassment in a state that is as deeply blue as California, where Democrats outnumber Republicans by more than five million voters. Um, so I think you know, a lot of this is does hinge on, on what happens tomorrow. But I do think you know, Democrats also need to look back at and even, regardless of what happens, you know, even if he wins this comfortably, look back and ask themselves, how did they get here in such a blue state? How did they get to the point where, you know, where they had to spend, you know, donors donated more than something, more than $70 million. Um, that's money that could have been spent on house races next year. Why do they have to spend that money to keep a Democrat in office in a state that has, that is so blue as California? Mm. So I think that Democrats are going to be looking back and, you know, just saying, how did we get to this point? Well, Paul Westcott, Seema mentions the margin. I'm sure that's something you will be interested in as well in terms of how this turns out one way or the other. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, when you're doing when you're dealing with a 10 million vote uh, or 5 million vote margin uh, overall in the overall electorate, Democrats to Republicans to have to spend upwards of 70 million dollars. And you really have a, a big cushion here. And when you're looking at the people who showed up, these are uh, white, older suburban voters. These are your sort of traditional, um, you know, traditional old school Democratic California voters that that seem to be tr- turning out and showing up. Um, the fact that it's it's even you know contested at all or there's any question of it uh still up in the air is is somewhat uh it's it's tough given that he's a democratic governor in a very very blue state paul westcott executive vice president for l2 a voter and consumer data firm Sima meta political reporter for the los angeles times thanks to both of you we're checking in on voter turnout and outreach ahead of tomorrow's special election. And as you've been hearing, there are still a lot of outstanding ballots that could change things, including ballots from Latino voters. Joining me now are KQED's politics senior editor, Scott Schaefer, and Lena Blanco, senior engagement platforms producer at KQED, who analyzed the campaign messages targeting Latino voters in particular and how they were received by two Latino families from different parts of the state. And I want to invite them in now. Scott Schaefer, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mina. Good to be with you. Also, Lena Blanco, glad to have you here as well. Thank you, Mina. And Lena, let me just start by asking you quickly, what was the inspiration for this deep look at how Latino families are responding to, to efforts to try to get them to vote in their direction, whether the yes or no side? 
Thank you, Mina, and thank you for having us on. So we know, especially as Latinos working in a newsroom, that come election time, politicians turn their attention to a singular, in quotes, Latino vote. But we know our community is not a monolith and in mm -hmm. fact is incredibly diverse and experienced. So ahead of the recall, Scott Schaefer on the call right now and Maria Peña and I wanna just start peeling back the layers of messaging coming out in Spanish, uh, in Spanish language recall ads. We didn't just want to hear from strategists and pundits, but really wanted to sit down and hear from families directly what they had to say uh, about what they were hearing. So we sat down with two families, one family in Oakland, the Diaz family, and then the Avila family, uh, who lives in the Central Valley in Modesto and Merced. And they shared so much wisdom with us that hmm. I can't wait to talk about. And this wisdom, Scott, that Lena is talking about is really important because Latino voters are increasingly and have been a very important, even critical voting block in California. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. There are about 27% of the electorate now are Latinos, and that's been growing steadily uh, for the past couple of decades, really. And, you know, they have tended uh, overwhelmingly to skew Democrat uh, in California, most parts of, of California. Although, you know, like any group of folks, uh, Latino voters are a diverse group of people in terms of where they come from, when they came to the U.S., what their family status is, and uh, where they live. I mean, you know, uh, Latino voters and Democrats generally in Fresno, for example, uh, tend to be you know, more moderate to conservative, and they care about different things than people in Los Angeles and the Bay Area. And so one of the things we wanted to look at is, you know, do these messages that are being sent to Latino voters in Spanish, mm -hmm. to what extent do they sort of reach them, you know, where they live, so to speak, not literally, but, you know, the things they care about. Are they being addressed by the candidates running to replace Gavin Newsom and by the yes and the no on the recall campaigns? It's interesting, Scott. Just earlier, we got a call from Domingo, who identified as a Democrat, but said that he is frustrated with Gavin Newsom. I'm wondering what may have led recall backers to make an extra effort to persuade Latino voters to the yes on recall side. Yeah. Well, there, especially early on, not so much now, but a few you know months ago, the polling on the recall, uh, Latino voters in some polls seem to be very open to the message of the yes on the recall side. They, they were undecided. Uh, you know, the favorable rating of Gavin Newsom was a little lower perhaps than among other Democratic groups. Uh, and so I think uh, the yes on the recall side felt, well, this, these are persuadable voters. And mm -hmm. so they wanted to spend some time and some resources on reaching out to them uh, in, in Spanish. We're talking with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Also, Lena Blanco is with us, senior engagement platforms producer for KQED News. It's recall election eve, and if we're talking about one of California's key voting blocks, Latino voters and the campaign messaging that's been targeting them around the recall. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. How are you feeling this day before the election? What has stood out to you about the political ads and messaging around the recall campaign? What have you liked? What have you not liked? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll dig into more of what Lena Blanco learned after Lena Blanco learned after talking with the families in depth about how they're responding to ads right after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with KQED's politics senior editor, Scott Schaefer, and Lena Blanco, senior engagement platforms producer at KQED. And Lena Blanco spoke with two Latino families from different parts of the state. And Lena, would love to hear what you learned. Tell us about the families that you spoke with and uh, also about the ads that you, you wanted them to respond to. Thank you, Mina. So my colleague Maria Peña and I uh, sat down with two families, like I said, uh, the Diaz family from Oakland uh, and then the Avila family from uh, the Central Valley in Modesto and Merced. Uh, and in each focus group, we, want, we watched a total of nine ads together from both sides of the recall effort, as well as spots from two top 
top candidates, Kevin Faulkner and Larry Elder. All of the advertisements were in Spanish, uh, and we just had this conversation sobre mesa with with both families. And so it's it's no secret um, that our Latino communities have been deeply affected by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, we can see messaging from the Yes campaign in some of the ads we watch really kind of lean in to this frustration, placing their bets on families who've been pushed to the margins, um, that they'll vote to remove Newsom, excuse me, from, from head of state. So um, one thing, so we the Diaz family, um, we spoke with Itzel Diaz from the Unity Council. Um, they emigrated from Guadalajara 20 years ago and voted for the first time in the US during last November's presidential election. And every member in both families, nearly every member of the focus group said that they found the ads that they watched incredibly ineffective and not hmm. aligned with their realities. And so even though the candidates may have been speaking in Spanish, um, they found that the fear-based messaging attack and defense strategy just did not sway them. And Itzel actually said that she was offended by Gavin Newsom's fear-based campaign messaging. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the ads described supporters of the recall effort as aligned with Trump, anti-immigrant, and the same people who would support implanting microchips in undocumented immigrants. Um, and so I, I would love to have Itzel speak for herself and kind of what her reaction was. Great. Let's hear a cut of Itzel Diaz. Me siento ofendida en el sentido de que piensan que, que con miedo van a llegar al, a la comunidad latina. A lo mejor 20 años, hace 20 años, a lo mejor hace 30 años les hubiera funcionado, pero están ignorando el hecho de que hay muchísima gente muy bien educada en la comunidad O sea, la gente está muy bien informada. Digo que digo, de verdad piensan que, que con puro miedo nos van a convencer. And so Itzel, who works at the Unity Council in Oakland, says that this fear-based strategy may have worked 20 or 30 years ago, but our, our community is very well informed. They know what um, challenges face them, but they also, um, she calls it an incredibly uh, a missed opportunity for Newsom to not speak about the legislative wins that actually supported undocumented seniors uh, become eligible for Medicaid, or even the extra $600 of stimulus uh, check funds uh, made available through the Golden State stimulus for undocumented community members who were not eligible for some of these federal benefits during the pandemic. Huh. And it also sounds like Itzel and her parents were a little frustrated with the kind of representation they saw of Latinos in some of these ads for, especially even the Newsom side. Absolutely. So Itzel and her father, Porfirio, uh, Porfirio Diaz, they're both, um, the, the family is Democrat, uh, registered Democrat and independent. And they said that it these ads, especially Kevin Faulkner's kind of promesa ad, uh, really just fits like the Latinos that were chosen fit these check boxes of we need someone who may be, uh, may be a, a straight couple with children, but they saw no representation of Afro-Latinos in the ads. They saw no representation of queer Latinos in these ads which didn't sit right with them in watching them. Um, so what they said as a takeaway is that it seemed to them watching these ads that uh, they saw who Republicans believed are who Latinos are and who they think would vote for them. So there were a lot of assumptions and kind of mm. the images that they saw reflected in the ads. Tell us about the other family you spoke with from the Central Valley, the Avila family. Yeah, so the Avila family, we spoke with Debbie, uh, at, who Debbie and her brother Obed and their mother Adela. They live in the Central Valley, are registered Republicans and identify as Mexican American. As a whole, they generally distrust and dislike Gavin Newsom, and they all spoke to this high cost of living and the pressure put on business owners during the pandemic. But while two of them, Adela and Obed, plan to vote yes on the recall, Debbie, uh, the daughter, will choose to vote no on the recall because she agrees with Newsom's approach to handling COVID. So even oh. though uh, the, uh, the, the Diaz and Avila families represent both sides of this political spectrum in our state, they, they really want politicians to meet them where they're at and actually hear what issues affect them most in their day-to-day. -day. And so Debbie summed this up really well. Well, let's hear Debbie Avila. I think that they need to invite us to the table. And um, they need to go out into the community and invite like your everyday people. I would love it if they had like a, a, an advisory committee that had people from all walks of life 
it would be nice to even see undocumented folks and see teenagers on that. There's a lot of wisdom in what they have and what they have to say. And that's Debbie Avila of the Avila family. And Scott, I'm struck by something that, that Lena said, which is in talking with the family and Debbie in particular, that she liked Newsom's COVID policies. It's so ironic because that's initially the argument to remove him that uh, yes on recall folks were saying, right? Exactly. It's kind of a disconnect. Uh, you know, Latinos, African-Americans have been disproportionately affected in a negative way by the pandemic in terms of health care, unemployment, uh, risk, being on the front line, vaccine equity, all those things. Um, and it's interesting because, yes, the, the, the yes on the recall campaign has, has tried to make the case that Newsom has failed to lead during the pandemic. Uh, and they criticize him for shutting down the schools and leaving them closed for too long. But, you know, when you look at who did and did not send their kids back to school when they reopened, Latino and black families were very reluctant because they were very concerned about COVID. And so it's a little hard to make the case to Latino voters that Newsom was wrong to keep the schools closed and also blame him for the spread of the pandemic. You know, he it's kind of like you can't have it both ways. And so I think that message may fall a little flat on some Latino voters. Now, if you are a Republican or, you know, you're a small business owner and you were hurt by the shutdown of businesses, you know, that, that may resonate a little bit more. Let me go to Gary in Sacramento. Hi, Gary. Hi, good morning. What do you want to say? Uh, I want to say that as a Democratic voters since the days of Nixon. Uh, I'm offended that the Democrats now are trying to label me as a supporter of the Republican recall rather than just labeling me and those like me as disgruntled voters, disgruntled Democrats hmm. that uh, are offended that uh, Newsom won't admit that we are against, that we are sacrificing him because. He just won't admit that he screwed up with things like the French Laundry. Well, Gary, thanks for that point. And Lena, it's reminding me a little bit of what you gleaned from speaking with the Avila family, that they were a little frustrated that uh, the Newsom side, the no on recall side, was trying to very much paint this as a Republican-led issue, trying to nationalize it more than really focusing on state frustrations. Absolutely. I think that's such a critical takeaway from these conversations that, you know, just saying that this is a, a, an effort led by Republicans or Democrats are wanting to do this is not a, a theme that resonates with these families. It's something that, um, you know, you you should not for 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 um, Latino voters you shouldn't and for excuse me for for Democrats there can't be an assumption made and this is something that we spoke to the professor uh, Julio Moreno at USF uh, about that Democrats have in many ways expected and assumed the Latino vote um, to be Democrat because it's simply Democrat versus really thinking about ways to strategically um, and intentionally connect with voters who are Latino, who have a vast uh, variety of concerns that, that may change from, from rural communities to urban communities to, as Scott mentioned, you know, the, the, the generation in which your family came to the state, whether you are a worker or a business owner. Um, and so there are several, you can't assume our vote um, and you also have, and, and politicians really need to be held accountable um, by our Latino communities for really advocating for our, our various needs in the state. Well, let's play a little bit of the cut you provided, Lina Blanca, from Julio Moreno. El tema común en todos los anuncios que no son muy sofisticados, en el sentido de que son en español, pero no tienen ese conecte. Y espero que aprendan los demócratas y los republicanos, ¿no? que, que tienen que ser más de simplemente lanzar anuncios en español, ¿no? Y, bueno, somos más de 60 millones de personas en este, en este país, ¿no? Yo creo que, que espero que de veras hagamos uh, llegar el peso político de, de, de nuestra comunidad. It doesn't sound like, Lena, that he thinks that the campaigns have gotten more sophisticated, even though the uh, Latino voting bloc is so critical. That is absolutely uh, aligned with what he's saying. It's it's not enough to simply launch ads in Spanish. Um, again, the families were like, okay, that was cool. That was great. You know, they didn't appreciate Larry Elder. None of the family members liked Larry Elder's uh, accent when when or his messaging. So it's not just about um, the you know presenting these ads in Spanish, but really this deeper connection. So he hopes that we 
we as Latinos, uh, as an expanding electorate in the state and up to the federal level, also value our political weight um, and demand proper representation of our legislators. And um, I think one of the takeaways he says too is that there are so many complexities of family dynamics um, in Latino households of how we vote, you know, the way that parents um, who are Spanish speaking might lean into their children to translate parts of their ballot or help guide them through the process of voting in this country. Uh, and so this experience of voting, while not for all households, I mean, granted, we, we spoke to two um, Mexican, uh, American and Mexican households in the state. Um, that's a very small kind of look at Latinos in the state, but they are experiences um, that, that should be heard and valued. So um, there is this kind of collective experience of voting um, that is a common theme in Latino households and understanding this family dynamic is something that politicians on either side um, may not have kind of a deeper insight into. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up. I mean, even I got that call from my mom, right? <laughs> Saying, how do I exactly. help me understand this? How do I vote? Uh, Lena Blanco, a senior engagement platforms producer for KQED News. Scott Schaefer, a senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. It's recall election eve, and we're talking about one of California's key voting blocks, Latino voters, and the campaign messaging that's been targeting them around the recall and how they responded um, to to Lena Blanco and Scott Schaefer when they sat down with these families. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're telling us how you feel about the recall on this election eve and asking questions about the research that Lena Blanco and Scott Schaefer have done, as well as the latest on the election. Kirk writes, throughout the past several months, I've never heard any commentator or journalist discuss the difference and purpose between a recall and a regular election. They aren't the same. Whether or not you like Newsom, he has done nothing to warrant removal from office. If you don't like him, there's a regular election just down the road. What do you think of what Kirk is saying, Scott? Alone. Uh, there are a lot of people who see this as a huge waste of money. The price tag is now closing in on $300 million. Maybe not a lot of money in, in light of a $262 billion state budget, but nonetheless, uh, there are a lot of other ways that money could be spent. Um, it's interesting because, you know, California has a relatively low threshold. It's relatively easy to get a recall on the ballot in uh, in our state. It's about 12%. You need to get 12% of the signatures of the 12% uh, of the people who voted in the last gubernatorial election. So in this case, uh, recall supporters handed in about 1.7 million uh, signatures. Uh, you know, there, there's talk about raising that, making it harder, make getting rather than 12%, maybe make it 25%, which is what other states that have recalls do. Um, and then the other point is, you know, there is something odd about uh, having a, a yes, no on the recall question and then having you know, 46 people running to replace him, and they don't need to get 50% plus one to win. You know, yes. you can become the governor. Larry Elder could easily become the governor with 38% or, you know, even less uh, if he just comes in first and a majority vote to recall the governor. I should take this opportunity to remind people that, yes, the ballot looks different. And if you are looking for information on voting in the recall election, logistics and so forth, you should definitely check out KQED's voter guide at kqed.org slash recall. Let me go to Johan in Richmond. Hi, Johan. Hi, I wanted to disagree with a, a previous caller. I think if the gubernatorial recall succeeds, much of the media and KQED included bear some responsibility for the governor's loss. And it's due to the relentless coverage of that French laundry dinner. It was just out of proportion to the incident, and it shows the un, you know, unfortunate lack of judgment and usual tone deafness of politicians. But did it really affect his efforts to mitigate the virus, keep the economy alive, or other issues that citizens like me genuinely care about? Mm. I think the answer is no. Um, journalists love to chase a scandal and waxed on about the optics of the incident, but I think they should have focused on the reality, which is that one dinner on one night doesn't define the entire term of a sitting governor. Well, Thanks. Johan, thank thank you. Clarice writes: If Governor, if Gavin Newsom is recalled, when will the replacement be appointed? If not immediately, could he appoint Diane Feinstein's replacement before he's replaced if she were willing to step down? Well, you can see what Clarice is concerned about, Scott. 
Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of one of those issues that's been in the background and not talked about a lot. But Dianne Feinstein, the senior senator and the oldest senator in, in the entire Senate, 88 years old, and there's some concern that if Newsom were recalled and she were to be unable to fulfill the rest of her term, that the next governor would be able to replace her. And Larry Elder has already said he would pick a Republican. Um, now, there is a bit of time uh, after the election uh, before the next governor would take office. I think it's 38 days. Um, so, it, you know, it's, he would theoretically, if she were to retire early, uh, you know, she could do that before the next governor took office. That's all, of course, very speculative. We don't know if any of those things are going to happen. But, uh, you know, it is a, it is a legitimate concern, uh, and it is a real issue that some voters are thinking about. Lena, at the beginning of the show, we were talking about how the trend of more of the Democratic share of the ballots coming from older or white voters has held. I'm wondering, based on talking with Latino voters, if you think in these closing days we'll see a large chunk of ballots coming from Latino voters? And if so, what do you think will be important, or if not even, for campaigns to take away from the lessons that you learned in reaching out to these two families? Thank you, Mina. And I think that's a really great question. I think there can be an assumption of like, oh, well, if we have mail-in ballots, then we will uh, start seeing all mail-in ballots coming in um, kind of early, early. And the, the Avila family who we spoke to, they were like, you know what? I'm going in person the day of to my polling place to cast my vote. I I like uh, not that there's distrust in uh, altogether in mailing in their ballot, but they were very determined to go in person the day of, and and that's something that is is can be a shared experience too. Um, granted, we spoke to, to to only two families, but when it comes to key takeaways, I think this recall is uh, providing so many lessons for organizers, for uh, politicians to really take stock of how to not just jump in uh, uh, to really uh, lean into the Latino vote around an election time. I think uh, the Diaz family spoke to this where it's like, this feels like a very rushed campaign. This messaging feels rushed. Um, but uh, every family member really said, please meet us where we're at. Come in person to town halls, to meet and greets before, during, and after elections. Um, and please, when you start crafting your campaign strategies, make sure that our um, concerns are part of what your platform is. And please introduce yourself to us. Tell us who you are. Don't just attack uh, or really lean into fear when you go about cra crafting your messages. Uh, every family member, while they vote differently and have a different uh, lens, they believe in uh, voting for their people. Well, thanks, Lena, and thanks to Maria Pena for sharing your reporting on Talking With These Families. Thank you, Scott Schaefer, for your reporting on the electorate. And thanks for listening, listeners. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.